Jordan. How's it going? What's up, Rob? Oh, uh, not much. You know. I got no small talk today. Just like I just reached into the well and there's just nothing. I don't know. That's okay. Yeah. Well. You're going to Japan. That's kind of fun. I am going to Japan tomorrow. Oh my goodness. Which is why some of the next few episodes uh, might be without me or without Rob because we recorded some uh, in advance to prepare. So you, the listener, our valued, beloved listener and class of paid interns, do not go a week without your beloved Insurgents content. Exactly. We wouldn't do that to you. And it's a good time to announce that Jordan is actually being replaced by ChatGPT. No, no! That. <laughs> Just like all the Hollywood hotshot writers now. They're being replaced by, by AI. As we talked about today, in our conversation with Netflix writer Olga Lexell, um, which was really great. She's on strike right now. Um, we were able to talk about this WGA strike that's going on and like how that fits into the labor movement and some of the narratives around that. Uh, it was very good, and I hope you enjoy it. And just like as I joke around about replacing you with ChatGPT, but I actually am going to do a bit on an upcoming episode about this. And I tried to work with ChatGPT to write to help me write this sketch, and honestly, it needs a lot of prompting. It needs a lot of editing. So I don't think this this technology is ready for prime time yet, frankly. Yeah, one of the one of the episodes I recorded with Jack Crosby for when I'm out, we talked about the threat ChatGPT may or may not pose to writers, journalists, you know, office workers, that kind of stuff. He shares your skepticism. I'm I don't know. I'm a little bit more worried just cuz I do think that like the end result being massive profit increases for these companies like there's going to be a race to get this to scale yeah uh as quickly as they can because they want they want to lay people off so we need to think about how we handle that as a society it's definitely not there now and certainly can't replace writers yeah as we talked about today it's like i think that's one of the reasons why it's important that this strike is happening now so that can get shut down before it really is has the ability to do that because i've talked about this before i think I think it is a really remarkable technology, and while it it uh, you know it's not perfect or it's not it can't step in and replace human beings right now, it is pretty remarkable the way that it can spit out uh, uh, scripts and uh, uh, pitches for shows and things like that. Like it's pretty incredible. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when it comes to AI, I think even if like that stuff is is a pretty amazing technology now, but maybe not ready to fill that role in a couple of years from now, it absolutely will be. So. That's that's these are conversations that do need to be had because um, I'm not one of these people that is completely skeptical that this is going to be a complete, total impossibility. Like I really do think in a few years this technology is going to be way way more advanced than it currently is, and uh, that will really impact a lot of these a lot of these fields and entertainment and other industries. Absolutely, absolutely. So before Olga comes on, I just. You know, this is pretty grim subject matter, but I think I really wanted to take a moment to talk about this because it's a really disturbing story. Um, and it's one of those stories that in and of itself is very disturbing. This murder of uh, Jordan Neely in the New York subway system a few days ago, uh, a busker, a Michael Jackson impersonator, someone who is going through uh, homelessness, 
was having some kind of mental health crisis, was basically, from my understanding of reading the stories, maybe you could describe it as acting aggressively or making people uncomfortable, but then was put in a this like rear naked choke by a trained former Marine and was killed. And I think it's a really disturbing story just in and of itself, but I think what I've been really um, even more disturbed by is the reaction to it. The reaction to it from right-wing media, or not even right-wing media, but like the New York Times and these major media institutions, using this kind of like passive voice cop language to shield from accountability, not a police officer, but a citizen who basically self-deputized themselves to act in that moment as judge, jury, and executioner for someone who was not even you know harming anyone or was not even being violent. And I think it's really disturbing the way that the media has has played this role in obfuscating that and giving that that giving them that same kind of protection and anonymity that they usually grant to cops. The way that the right wing is celebrating the like basically murdering an unhoused person, and um, the way you see a lot of people commenting on it in this kind of approving way, I think is a really kind of grim sign about you know America, but just generally where this kind of like Western capitalist society is is going right now. It's it's really really disturbing. Man, I I think let's start with the bloodlust. The people cheering this on, justifying it, using personal anecdotes of being inconvenienced. That's ultimately what it is. They're bothered, they're annoyed. They have to put their headphones in on the train. I don't fucking care. I don't care. You live in a major city. There's always going to be someone going through something. There's always going to be somebody impacting your day for better or for worse. It's the price of living in a city. Someone going through homelessness. And as we talked about in our conversation with Olga, definitely is a problem in LA and especially New York in part because of the rising and continued rising cost of living. Apartments, uh, apartments are more and more expensive. Homes are just totally out of reach especially if you're on the margins of society. Jobs and the wages uh, for these jobs have not kept up with these cost of living increases and certainly not with inflation. And you have these people who are falling through the gaping holes in the safety net. People who just need care, just need stability, just need their material needs met. The solution is never violence, disdain, aggression, and not even indifference. The solution is help, care, compassion, respect, and dignity. And what we see is in when people are justifying that he was executed on the spot by some stranger, it's that, oh, he was arrested 40 times. Ask yourself why he was arrested that many times and his, his material conditions, his psychological conditions, his health, his wellness, his physical, his financial, any of these conditions didn't improve to the point where the arrests stopped or he found stability or he got back on his feet. And it speaks to how we respond to homelessness, how we respond to poverty and just summarily criminalizing it all. Nothing is going to improve for these people if you continue arresting them. We need to invest in, and this is the core of defund the police, reallocate 
some of the money that goes to police departments with these ballooning budgets, especially NYPD, reinvest it into community services, affordable housing, education, health care, and just watch how quickly things change. But no, you want a carceral state? These are the people and these are the conditions they're going to ex- be experiencing that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. Jordan Neely did not deserve to die because he was homeless or because he was going through an episode. What he needed was help, and what he was met with was his death. I, 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 I will never understand why people cheer that on, but that bloodlust, as illustrated throughout the right wing in their politics, is more and more common and open. And we're getting to the point where we're watching snuff films on social media and their knee-jerk reaction is to celebrate. What a grotesque society. Yeah, I mean, and you point out people saying that, well, he had this criminal record. He had all these these prior arrests. Uh, he, he was probably on drugs or whatever. And uh, you know what? Like, none of that equals an instantaneous death sentence. None of that justifies someone being just killed on the spot by someone, not even an agent of the state, but someone who's just self-deputized himself to act with this kind of violence against someone who, again, is not even harming anyone. Um, And yeah, as you point out, it's like it's a society with diminishing or declining or no social services whatsoever, no housing, no health care, no mental health care, food stamps diminishing as well, being taken away. And just like every every small measure of people's ability to live lives with basic dignity, even when they're in poverty or when they're homeless, um, is being stripped away. And this is the result. I saw a number of these arguments, you know, it's like this, well, this is what happens, you know, because I, because Alex saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about this. And of course, all the normal, uh, usual suspects were uh, coming back at it saying like, well, this is what you wanted, defunded police and community policing and all this stuff. Well, that's what happens. But it's like, well, no, that's not what happens because no police, certainly not the NYPD have actually been defunded. In fact, they're making even more money. They're get their police, their budgets are even higher than they were previously. And Eric Adams has even talked about putting more NYPD officers in the subway to deal with this exact kind of issue. The police have not been defunded. And in fact, if there was some kind of link between funding police and preventing this kind of crime from happening, perhaps this crime would have been prevented. Um, but that's not the case. I also saw people making this case. They're like, well, you know, you don't care. Uh, there's people that are murdered in the subway all the time. There's homeless people and drug addicts and bad people that are killing people all the time and you don't care. But the fact is though, one of the, if one of these people commits a crime, commits a murder in the subway or anyone else, they're subjected to, uh, the criminal justice system. They get arrested. They go on trial. They go to jail. They get beaten by the police. They, they're subjected to uh, the criminal justice system already. The difference is these people can't quite come to grips with this, but the difference is in this case is that the person that committed the crime is actually like held up as being some kind of heroic figure. They're shielded from accountability from the media, including Eric Adams in his interviews about this, basically downplayed the the whole the whole thing. And um, you know, the police interview the guy and then let him go. That's the difference, right? It's not that it's not like there's people just committing murders in the subway all the time and there's there's no consequences and they get away with it. The fact is in this case, someone killed someone and was held up as to as a hero um and was shielded from accountability by the media and was not actually charged with the crime by the police. That's the difference. But these people have a hard time wrapping their minds around this. 
Yeah, I just saw as of a couple hours ago, uh, NYPD and the Manhattan DA are just considering charging him with a crime. They're still considering it. We have a video of somebody, and we have to say allegedly for all of this, you know, he allegedly killed somebody. I think the medical examiner did actually say that it was, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, like... (laughs) You know, you have to Allegedly. say it for like legal reasons, <laughs> yeah. and, but like, yeah. And then you watch the video and someone dies in it and it's just that they're even at this point, it speaks to this privilege. It's definitely white privilege and it's definitely class privilege. You know, this is, if it was the other way around, Jordan Neely would, would have already been arrested easily. It, even every condition was exactly the same. And this other guy who I don't outlets are not even publishing his name. And like, like very few people, I, I saw it in a group chat um, and I haven't seen it in many other articles. And it, again, it's just like, this is a total imbalance, but if it was totally reversed, everything else was the same, but this other nameless alleged murderer died instead of Jordan Neely, Jordan Neely would already be arrested easily. Yeah. And you know, I think the, this case is very disturbing, but I think it's indicative of, I think, a really alarming trend here where, like, as we've talked about, cost of living is skyrocketing, cost of housing is skyrocketing, especially in these major cities. The homeless populations in all these major cities are increasing, addiction increasing in all these places. You have big tent encampments popping up in basically every major city in, in you know, North America. You're seeing this phenomenon kind of grow. And the way that these people in these communities are just so consistently demonized and dehumanized, again, not even by conservatives, but by like these kind of NIMBY liberals as well, who find them, you know, off-putting and unappealing and don't want to have to see them on their commutes and don't want to have to see them in the parks. Whereas you've pointed out, like none of these material conditions are actually being improved in any way. And in fact, they're getting worse. And I think this trend of like not only dehumanizing these people, but you know, encouraging people to just take action, um, take the law into their own hands to confront these people who are viewed as as just like vermin or subhuman is a really fucking alarming trend. And, you know, it's not just this case. It's like people assaulting shoplifters in TJ Maxx or like pharmacy employees, like shooting at pregnant women that are shoplifting from the, from the stores. Like the way that we've completely dehumanized unhoused people we've this narrative has been created in the media about shoplifting and crime even though if you look at it like violent crime and a lot of these things are actually down as from where they were in the in the 70s and 80s um but this narrative is being promoted and people are becoming more and more encouraged to completely just take the law into their own hands and just like act again self-deputize themselves and act as basically judge jury and executioner in some cases and it's it's really alarming considering you know that like this these socioeconomic issues that are causing these people to fall through the cracks like this are not going away they're in fact getting worse so it's leading to this situation where more and more people are going to get more and more comfortable not even waiting around for the police but to act with violence themselves against these people who they've determined are just like less than human it's a really alar- disturbing trend i think yeah yeah absolutely I, I yeah. sympathies go out to his family. Um, I just saw they started a GoFundMe. If people want to contribute, we can link to that in the on the Substack. Um, if people want to give, that's just really, really depressing stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. One of the very depressing stories coming out to the good old US of A uh, lately. Um, I guess we should get to our interview with uh, Olga Lexel now, not to like set her up with this really grim conversation ahead of time. It's maybe a little bit more lighthearted, um, but it was a really enjoyable conversation with Olga to talk about the WGA strike, something else that people should be paying close attention to. So what do you say? Do like, you think we should bring on Olga? We should do it. Let's go. All right. Sounds good. So Olga Lexel, Netflix writer, uh, will be joining the program right after this. Joining us now is Netflix writer Olga Lexell. Olga, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, uh, we have to ask you something that's much more serious and much heavier than the current WGA strike and contract negotiations process. This is, I think you will agree, as all of our listeners agree, this is much more important. And it's something we ask of all of our guests, just so we know who we're dealing with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Olga, are you a gamer? You know, I'm like a gamer light. I think a okay. lot of the games that I play, like I'll, I'll tell you this, Tetris 99, I come in top five every time. I'm literally really? like 99th percentile level of player. Why? If I like Fortnite, I can't play for shit. Like if someone's shooting at me, I panic and I drop the controller. <laughs> but uh tetris like that's i i'm a gamer for that game only basically game's tough uh i've played it a little bit on my switch and for people unfamiliar it is battle royale tetris and you get matched up oftentimes against it seems like a lot of like either japanese or korean players based on their names yes it's almost always yeah japanese teenagers (laughs) uh every time once you're eliminated you could watch other people's uh, boards and the way they play Tetris is so fascinating. Like I'll, I usually place like a, a good finish for me is in like the twenties. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not top five like you, but once I get eliminated, I want to watch and see because that is such an interesting game, especially when you get later in it because it, it's no, going every, so fast. Everyone has their own strategies too, so you see the people who are truly like edging, putting up like forty rows. <laughs> Uh, and just yeah. waiting for that blue piece to drop. It's yeah. uh, it's everyone has their own style. I'm a little bit more of a of a safer player, which is why I'm not always top one. I guess. Yeah, Rob, have you played? I, I'm not the not this version that you're talking about. I'm one of the old school, the, the original version, the Game Boy version. You know all that Kami stuff. Tetris. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I haven't played this newfangled <laughs> Zoomer Tetris. Translate. You're talking about here. Yeah. It doesn't always translate, for sure. Um, I will say I've also... I played uh, Super Mario Sunshine as a kid. That was my big game. I'm still a big Mario Kart head. Um, but I wouldn't say I'm very good at games that require like a lot of coordination. Did you see the Mario movie? I did. I actually liked it. I know a lot of people weren't into it, but I saw it in a theater full of like eight-year-olds, and yeah. it was amazing. Yeah, I saw it with my son, who's seven, and his friend, too. So, you know, they had a great time. Yeah, I thought it was enjoyable. Um, you know, 
despite its realistic portrayal of panic attacks, which is, I guess, the new barometer for whether an animated film is good now these days, um, wasn't wasn't a movie that was really trying to be more than just you know giving the giving the fans of the franchise what they want over and over again. And here's that music cue that you like, and now they're in the carts, and you know it wasn't really wasn't really making an effort to go move beyond that. And I think that that worked in its in its favor. It was pure vibes and yeah. they used, I wasn't a huge fan of the eighties needle drops, but they used the best versions of the actual original score. Cause I feel like s- some filmmakers would have chosen to just do like wall to wall, Lady Gaga, like Rihanna, yeah. top 40, whatever is going on, but it, it made a choice and I respect that. It was very funny to see the whole, like, is it woke? Is it not woke? The, there was all the people preparing to call it woke until it made a lot of money. And then it's like, I, actually, it's not. Turns out it's uh, it's not at all. And he's like, it's funny the way these people will like whatever fits that narrative of like the going woke, going broke. They'll they'll do that. But if it makes money, then that automatically makes it not woke. But if it had not been successful, they would have pointed to girl boss princess and panic attack mario and stuff and holding it up as an example for why it failed but when it made money they're just like it turns out it's actually not so no problem i didn't even know there was a woke debate about this movie because going into it i was actually curious how they would handle the bowser peach relationship because like i mean in the games it's like bowser is uh forcing this child princess into marriage in every game and it's weird um and they kind of just did that but it felt normal so i yeah. if anything i was like this doesn't feel very woke so i don't know they're cool with child marriage though so that, that <laughs> yeah yeah that's actually it. makes it that's one of the things they liked about it they were cheering for bowser <laughs> oh, that whole I time see. yeah yeah that makes sense <laughs> olga and thank you so much for joining us you're here because the wga writers guild just went on strike after weeks of trying to reach an agreement with the studios, we're now uh, uh, we're, we're now at a, at a roadblock, and the writers have gone on strike. Now, the conversation, if consumed online, has largely been about, well, we don't need these writers. You know, you're like the perfect target for a lot of right-wing commentators. It's They're doing wokeism and all of our favorite TV shows or movies. And if you you know, pay attention to real coverage or listen to the writers themselves. What you will hear is writers have been taken advantage of, they're underpaid, and the changing landscape in that industry has demanded adjustments to the the collective bargaining agreement. People who aren't familiar with what is happening, how we reach this point, and what is going on now, could you update them? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll start off by saying I started working in this industry in 2011, um, which was kind of the perfect time to see power shift from the traditional media networks to the new tech companies, um, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, all of those. And with that came this kind of disruptor mentality. And this was already a heavy union industry, probably one of the most unionized industries in the U.S., um, a place where unions have always been the norm. And we've just been watching them try to break those down for years now. 
Um, I'll start off by saying when you used to be a TV writer, you used to make so much money. Uh, it was sometimes absurd. If you were on a successful network show, uh, you were making beyond a living wage. And if you, even if you weren't on a successful show, you were making a living wage. Um, but over time, the systems that kept the living wages protected have eroded. The biggest one being residuals. Um, a lot of people don't know what residuals are, but basically it used to be the case that when you watched an episode of TV, that writer got paid each time that episode was rerun, um, which used to be a lot because there were reruns on TV all the time. Um, now, obviously, when a show goes up on a streaming platform, it doesn't get rerun. It's just there forever. Uh, when a show airs on NBC, it goes straight to Peacock for streaming uh, or for the other networks, places like Hulu, Netflix. Uh, and when you get a show that's streaming, you're not making very much in residuals at all. Um, I'm very new to the industry, so I've never received residuals, but that used to be if you worked on one season of a show for a year, the money you made off of residuals could carry you over for the next year if you didn't work, which was the norm. Um, nowadays, uh, people have to work two to three shows a year if they can just to make a living wage. Part of that, too, has to do with, um, again, our, the streaming platforms have disrupted how a room is structured. It used to be you had 22 episodes. And as a result, you worked all year basically on one show. Um, nowadays, the norm is like eight to 10 episodes, maybe even six, sometimes even less. And because of that, you're only working, you know, I've been on rooms that went eight weeks, six weeks, instead of 27 to 42 weeks. And most of our pay comes from our weekly work. So when you're only working eight weeks, it doesn't matter that your weekly pay is high, because you're probably not going to work again for the rest of the year. Um, and it's possible making the guild minimum, if you're working for six weeks, you're making less than $30,000 for the year. Uh, and that's just not sustainable, especially as a writer, you have to pay commission to your representatives and things like that. You're paying much higher taxes because you are uh, an independent contractor a lot of the time. So the whole situation is just eroded. The fact that there's so many more shows means that the money is just being spread in a much wider area rather than, you know, a network focusing on one big show and making sure all of those writers were being paid well. So the situation has just gone untenable. Sorry, I said so much. Uh, feel free to cut any of that. No, it's a great need. place to, no, no, that's a great place to, uh, to get us oriented here. And I think it's worth pointing out as well. It's like not only are writers uh, making less, as you point out, because of the ways these tech companies have disrupted this industry, but also especially, you know, in places where a lot of these shows are being made, like Los Angeles, for example. I don't know where you are. Are you in L.A.? I am in Los Angeles, which I don't know if you know this, but it's not okay. cheap here. Well, this is what I mean. It's like not only are writers being paid less, but cost of living is increasing drastically, um, making it way more difficult for anyone to make a living, uh, which is another thing that people don't really recognize as well. It's like even when someone's making a decent salary or even if they're getting a pay raise, if they're not getting a pay rise that goes along with the increases in cost of living and inflation, it's actually a pay cut. Um, but people have a hard time wrapping their minds around this. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, 
our weekly rates have stayed pretty similar for a long time. And it may seem like a lot if you look at the pay from, you know, five to 10 years ago. But nowadays, when like a one bedroom house is $1 million, um, it just doesn't go that far. Yeah. <laughs> uh- this is also, you know, the backdrop here uh, is the CEOs of these companies, their pay has continued to rise at ridiculous rates. You know, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings made 40 million. Uh, the other, I'm sorry, the other and the other co-CEO of Netflix. What a cushy job. Co-CEO. 38.2 <laughs> million. Ted Sarandos. Brian Roberts of Comcast. 30 million. Bob Chapek of Disney. 32.5 million. Uh, who he got replaced. That was the guy that that, that left. Now Bob Iger is back. Uh, 45.9 million. I mean, mm-hmm. the like, list goes on. These people are making tens of millions of dollars on top of all of their other, you know, stock options or other money that they're making uh, in other aspects of their life. These people are doing fine. What the writers who fuel all of the programming that they profit off of, they're just asking for a living wage that keeps up with not just the increased cost of living that Rob's talking about, but also the changing ways people consume this content to be fairly compensated for their work. That's it. I mean, when you see these salaries, how does that make you feel? I mean, it's it's mind boggling. I think the the biggest villain so far that I've seen everyone gravitate towards is uh, David Zasloff, the Warner Brothers CEO, who made two hundred and forty six million dollars last year, um, which is, I think, more than like all of those other guys put together into a transformer, basically. Um, So that amount of pay is staggering. That's more than one writer will make in 25 lifetimes. Um, And the wild thing is, as much as these companies cry wolf and say, we're broke, it's been a bad year, it's been a recession, all of these CEOs are making more money every single year, more and more. And even beyond that, they're making way more in profits. I think even compared to the 07 writer's strike, they're making like three or four times more in billions than they did then as a collective. And it's just shocking to be told over and over again that these companies uh, are out of money. Um, They can't afford to pay writers, which is their talking point. Um, While, you know, these people are out partying on yachts. David Zasloff was at the Lakers game the other night. Uh, He's clearly not hurting. Um, I'm here canceling all of my Netflix and uh, Apple subscriptions to make sure that I don't run out of money while we're on strike. Um, so it's it's beyond frustrating. Well, it's not even like the CEO pay, but the amount of money that these companies such as Netflix are spending on these series is just astronomical. Um like to the point yes, that you have to wonder like what absolutely. the hell is going on. It's like, is this like a money laundering operation or something like that? I don't know. Like I, I, mean, I, saw, a tweet, Amazon... I saw a tweet the other day uh, about this Netflix series. I actually had to look this up. Jupiter's Legacy, which Netflix spent $200 million on and canceled immediately after one season. I've never even heard of this show. Like the amount of money that's Me being neither. thrown around to create these series is just fucking astronomical. Which is amazing, I think, when you when you talk about the situation for the actual people that are writing this programming, who have been getting less and less, have been getting squeezed out of this. But like, where is this money going? Like, there's the, they seem to have this unlimited money supply to throw at these projects, but 
the money's not going to the people that are actually writing the words that the actors say. It seems pretty ridiculous. Absolutely. I mean, a, a big recent example is Citadel, which was $200 million for the entire show. Those numbers are unheard of. You know, a typical TV show is like a million to two million per episode. Like that's kind of what's normal. Sometimes you get these big budget things like Game of Thrones, and that's becoming more and more common where the studios are willing to drop 200 to 300 million dollars on one season of a TV show. There's no way that that will ever make its money back um, because no amount of subscribers is going to give you that much ad revenue. And then they turn around and say, well, we can't pay writers anymore. We just can't afford it. Um, it's absurd. And yeah, I wonder about, are these just tax write-offs? Like, what are they doing with this money? Uh, why are they churning out $500 million seasons that no one's ever going to watch? It's just bad business straight up. Um, it feels intentional in many ways. And I also think, is this like a tax haven for someone? It's not. Yeah. There's something fishy going on there. What is Citadel anyways? I don't even know. I've seen the ads, but I haven't heard of that either. I don't know. It did, it didn't get great reviews, um, <laughs> which I think is something that also happened with Lord of the Rings, where it was a huge budget and then not that many people watched it. Um, they're not even retaining eyeballs on a lot of these shows. Like the, I, I think I saw the stats for Lord of the Rings was like uh, like a very small fraction of people who start the show actually keep watching it, which is, yeah. again, kind of what happens when you burn all of this money and maybe don't give the writers the pay that they deserve to write compelling stories. I don't know. Not to shade on either of these shows, but it just feels like a mismatch of priorities to me. Yeah. The, the true victims here and all of this, I mean, writers, sure, they want better conditions, but we also need to think about the shareholders who are struggling uh, this week as the stock prices of these major studios have has fallen in the wake of the writer's strike. Yes. And I think that's, be, you know, they're, they're struggling. So we're going to start a GoFundMe. The, it, the, it's going to be in the uh, in the show notes if you can chip in, help the shareholders. It's greatly appreciated. Yeah, we yeah. have the uh, Entertainment Community Fund for struggling production <laughs> workers uh, at IATSE WGA. And I think we should give that money to the Wall Street shareholders. Yeah. Um, they they often tell us that those numbers are imaginary, um, that they didn't lose $1 billion overnight. But uh, I think they're just coy and we should give them the money they deserve. Such a generous move. That's, that's wonderful. But I mean, mm -hmm. that... Gina, you know, jokes aside, that is a lot of, you know, concern, um, skittishness within that, you know, from that, that behavior from these investors pulling out shows that they know the quality is going to decline. And people have been drawing comparisons to the 2007 strike. That's the last mm -hmm. time writers were on strike. And the quality of the programming just fucking plummeted. There was a funny clip I saw shared with when Conan didn't have yeah. his writers and he was ring. just spinning his <laughs> wedding ring on his desk and they were like timing it during the show. And it shows like, even though you have these recognizable figureheads and especially in late night, the talent isn't within them. The talent was, it was with the writers. They're just reading a fucking script. They're just a face. And I, I just, I, people really need to understand how bad it's going to get your favorite shows that might, you know, some really just fizzled in 2007. The talent and the strength of these programs that you like is with the writers, not the not the the personality on TV delivering those lines. 
I mean, off of that, I think a lot of people don't actually know what a writer does because we write, of course, but we also produce television. Um, On a comedy, the writer of that episode is usually there on set, changing lines that don't work, punching up jokes at the last minute. Um, So much changes day to day in the moment where they're in post, uh, making sure that the episode is edited in the way that makes you know the scenes most funny most impactful there's so much more to writing than just putting the words physically on the page and i think a lot of people don't understand that because if you ever see a writer on set there's no world where you think that chat gpt can do that you know um so i think i think a lot of that is getting lost in all of this Uh, i see a lot of blue checks on there that are like you know what I don't like my shows right now, so I'm glad that the writers are leaving. And it's all going to go downhill. There's no one on set. There's no one in post. Um, There's nothing in the pipeline. There's just nothing. It's going to be people on TV staring at a camera, rattling their cages. That's all you're going to get. Yeah, and I think we should dig into that a little bit more because, like you point out, it's not just about writers uh, wanting to be paid more, which they obviously should, in which there's money to do to make sure they do get paid. But it's because there is, I think, an appetite among these like streaming bosses and these kind of new studios to say, like, well, what do we even need these writers for? Now there's technology like ChatGPT. They can just spit out in 30 seconds a little script uh, that we can just start doing that. Um, and I think that's really amazing. And I think it's a, it's not surprising that these like Twitter weirdos that would pay Elon Musk eight dollars for to have a, a blue check mark are into this idea and think think that that would be something that would be good or entertaining. But like that to me is something that really does need to be addressed right now because like I think if these corporate studio executives start getting their way now, they will squeeze all the talented human beings out of this process as they can to ensure that they have this machine that just like they can just plug words into and spit out content and then they can reap the benefits. And, you know, that needs to be dealt with now before this technology advances even more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the end goal of these studios is to not have to employ any human beings ever. Um, where I've already seen ideas floated about, well, what if chat GPT generated these scripts and then we bring in one or two writers on yeah. like a day rate, uh, it's going to be like a copy wage. editor basically for a robot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is wild. It, it, it reminds me of like when you go to a modern art museum and you're looking at like an incredible painting, by like some minimalist and someone goes, well, I can do that. You know, I, I I've done that before. Yeah. Like the, I think people just don't understand the creativity, the amount of work that goes into this again, you know, like writers, we're not just sitting there writing on a page. I think a lot of people don't understand the process at all. Um, we are constantly trying to make things that are interesting that have never been done before. Uh, we are constantly trying to make things work on set. People don't know what that entails. I mean, when you're on set for an episode, you're having meetings about the props used. You're having meetings about every single detail that's in a scene. It's not like chat GPT can do that. 
Um, although it'd be very funny to be wheeling in like an Edward Snowden TV with chat GBT and asking them questions. Um, but there's so much that goes into it um, at every level. Like you have input on costuming, you have input on stunt work. Like the, the people just really do not appreciate how much human labor goes into making these things happen. And it's frustrating. And quite frankly, I think if you have a blue check mark next to your name, you would shit your pants after spending five minutes on the set. So <laughs> it's so funny how that term has just completely flipped yeah after years of the right using it as like some sort of derogatory insult <laughs> now, now here I know. we are as, a, as, a, <laughs> as a former legacy blue check uh the the speed with which it became just a derogatory like nickname for people i like it i'm glad it happened yeah it's funny <laughs> when they already made the memes for us so we could just <laughs> copy yeah. and paste them yeah exactly Silence, blue check. So, oh, <laughs> uh, Olga, you've been out picketing uh, in L.A. What has that been like? It's been fun. You know, I've I've picketed a little bit for other unions. I've never been on my own picket line. Uh, it's very cool seeing all of the veteran writers who are around for the 07 strike picketing. Like they they have gigantic comfy shoes they have like a snack bag ready to go. Half of them are like AirPods in, you know, not talking to anyone. Like they know how it goes. Um, but I've also seen a lot of like film students who won't even graduate for a few years coming out who are like, you know, this is our future. Uh, and that's very inspiring. But mostly it's like going to a party where you run into like your 55 friends who are also unemployed, which is pretty cool. You get to catch up with everyone. Uh, people have been bringing us snacks, which I love. Um, the agencies and management companies have been turning out. Um, we uh, we saw WME bring pizzas yesterday to the Fox lot, which was fun. Uh, although their CEO did make a lot of money producing content. So we'll, we'll see uh, <laughs> if they expect us to reciprocate or anything. Um, but it, it's been a really good vibe. It's really powerful. It's awesome seeing like Teamsters show up to pick it with us too. Uh, one of the biggest things about this strike is that the Teamsters said they won't cross our pickets. Um, and, you know, Teamsters do a lot in the industry. One of the biggest things is delivering supplies to studio lots. So uh, today at the Sony lot, we saw uh, an 18-wheeler just turn around uh, and honk and support, which was very cool. Um, it's all been really exciting, honestly. It's I feel like a dock worker. Like we're all we're all nerds, but we feel like really powerful and strong, which helps. And of course, we're writers, so we write very good signs. Um, it's been a nice outlet for us. I think it's worth talking about um, the way that the media frames these kinds of uh, uh, conflicts between uh, workers and the bosses, and when workers go on strike. And it's not just about this particular strike. Um, you know, there's been there's been a, an ongoing strike up in here in Canada with the PSAC over the last couple of weeks. And I think you see this like anytime there's a major strike that causes disruptions in a major industry. And it's I think it's a big problem the way that the media kind of manufactures consent to support the bosses in almost every case. And anytime there's striking workers, like whether it's it's this or, you know, striking uh, public transit workers or whatever, Anything that causes disruption in people's lives, 
the way that this gets framed in the media is like, look at these workers, they're greedy and they're, they're because of their want to get, they want more and more and more. They're this thing that you like, whether it's your, your stories or whether it's transit or whatever, now you don't have it. And they make this connection in people's minds that it's like, that, that kind of like pits people against one another and says like, well, I don't have my stories yeah. now. Well, what's the reason? Well, it's because of these writers. And the, the, like, the, the blame is never put on the immensely powerful uh, forces that have the, op- have the ability easily and the capital to make sure everyone's taken care of and are not uh, treating workers fairly, are not paying them fairly, are insisting on this bullshit, like trying to replace them with robots and things like this. But when we talk about yeah, these I things mean, in, our, in our media, especially, this connection isn't made. It's just like greedy workers are stopping me from seeing my stories. It is. I, I was laughing so hard this morning. I don't know if you all saw that uh, article from Deadline Hollywood that was like, uh, writers prevent Kieran Culkin and Jennifer Coolidge yeah. from hosting big SNL <laughs> finale. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it they literally frame it like we are holding Kieran Culkin at gunpoint and yeah. not letting him do anything. And Kieran we just Culkin did is this crying for fun. Now. He wanted to host He's, SNL and he's look crying. What did. Look what you yeah, did. <laughs> we we have a bag over his head and we won't let him talk to anyone, basically, is what they want people to think. It is. Uh, I think it was worse during the last strike, to be honest. This time around, I think people are a little bit more media savvy. So, like, when those articles go up, all the replies are like, "Shut the fuck up! You guys pay the writers more. Come on." <laughs> yeah. So that that's been really cool. I do think that everyone seems to be supportive of the writers, except for like five guys on Twitter who uh, are mad that their shows are gone. Well, and all like the Daily Wire guys yeah, the, and like all those people, the, the who all, by the way, are fucking failed screenwriters, Ben Shapiro and all of these ben, fucking losers. Ben Shapiro. Yeah. I know. All he's, failed screenwriters. He lives so, in like, yeah, LA. why don't we replace him with AI? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I honestly, seeing how upset Ben Shapiro is, just because he's always posting like the worst movie and TV takes of all time, I would personally love to to see him cross a picket line. Uh, do some light scabbing, maybe. Uh, I would be yeah. thrilled. So, but it, it is it is really cool to see a lot of people who uh, like don't have an entertainment career being like, ah, well, I'm gonna go scab just to show it to these lefties. Uh, well, isn't cool Daily stuff. Wire I'm, like I'm isn't fan. isn't Daily Wire like putting together some whole like right wing conservative anti woke entertainment of uh, uh, behemoth or whatever, like that's what they're trying to put together right now. But the key factor uh, that these people are forgetting, they can throw a lot of money at these things and get a bunch of non-unionized right-wing people to write all kinds of content. But it almost always sucks shit. So it's like that's the big thing that they're they're losing sight of is that it's not funny or entertaining I, I, in any <laughs> way, and no one will like it. You know the the funny thing is too like Breitbart obviously just did My Son Hunter recently and <laughs> like all of those actors are SAG actors SAG is about to negotiate their contract too potentially going on strike June 30th so like what what do they think they're going to make some of their biggest stars are in unions and yeah, I would imagine uh, many if not all of them rely on SAG insurance uh like SAG after insurance, from what I understand, is pretty good. Uh, oh, and yeah. if that's you know what, whatever else they're doing, I don't I don't know what all of them do on the side, but I 
would imagine if it's just odd things here and there, it's probably not giving them benefits. So I'd be very curious to see where they fall when it comes to their own conditions. I know. Honestly, all of this is making me want to like get a job at Daily Wire and try to salt them and uh, get a get like a Daily Wire union going. Get get on that guild insurance. Yeah. Well, the good thing about that is that your stuff doesn't need to be popular because it's just like you've got a right wing fracking billionaire just paying for everything anyways. So it doesn't matter if people watch it or don't watch it or whatever. There's like, yeah, whatever. here's your billion dollars. Or I don't care. Yeah, just do whatever. You just, write, you just write the attack helicopter joke hundreds of times. Yeah, exactly. This is fucking it's, gold. It's <laughs> going to be that one right wing comedian who makes that joke about flags where he's like, uh, if I was an alien uh, and I came to New York. I wouldn't know I was in America. I would think I was in gay Ukraine because of the flags. That's going to be all content no. during the writer's strike. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Although in, in their defense, I mean, listen, you don't have he's to hand big, it to he's them. He's a listener. I, I, I didn't see You simply my son do Hunter. not have to hand it to them. No. <laughs> I didn't see my son Hunter, but it did look kind of entertaining. Maybe not the way that like they intended it to be, but I did, when I saw the trailer, I was like, okay, I do kind of want to watch this flick. This seems kind of worth checking Re- out. Real anyway. talk, not to go on a whole tangent about my son Hunter, but it, it is an incredible film. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the, I'll say this, when you start watching it, and uh, I'm I'm Eastern European, and I was I was like, why are all of these names in the opening credits uh, like clearly Serbian names? Uh, and I found out they shot it all in Croatia uh, on a budget of like eighteen thousand GoFundMe dollars. So it's <laughs> that that should tell you everything you need to know about this movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, o- Olga, what could people do to support? You know, if if by you know happenstance someone's listening is in another union that interacts with uh the entertainment industry obviously you don't want to cross the picket line uh, do you what do you do do you cancel your subscriptions do you stop watching things uh where can they donate i'd be, I'd be curious to know what listeners can do to support you all yeah so the the guild hasn't called for a formal boycott so you can keep your you know streaming subscriptions for now uh maybe in the future they will but the biggest way to support, honestly, there's a lot of union workers who are going to be impacted by this and non-union workers across every sector of the industry. Um, if you Google Entertainment Community Fund, that's kind of a big uh, need-based fund for all entertainment workers, and it's specifically helpful to all of the unions. So donating to that is a big help. Um, the WGA does have its own strike fund. Um so you, it's better for people to donate to the entertainment community fund to help everyone else. Um, if you live in L.A. or New York, just coming to the pickets, uh, bringing your body there, holding a sign, even if it's on your lunch break, is a huge help. Um, even if you're in a union and you're not allowed to solidarity strike, um, you can still pick it on your lunch break, things like that. We always need more bodies um, if you're online, using the hashtag WGA Strong to post, show your support, uh, boost all of the photos of us beautiful hot writers walking 20,000 steps a day, holding up witty signs, um, that's always helpful. 
And look, if you see an article from Deadline that says writers are the devil and they're stealing our shows, um, you can reply and say, that's not true. You should pay them. Uh, and that's my advice. <laughs> also, if you live in <laughs> LA and New York, I have to say, we are walking 20,000 steps a day. If you're only doing one four-hour shift, that's what I've been averaging. And I am eating like five donuts a day. I'm starving. Um, by the end of this, I'm going to have like the most beefy calves and just like a donut gut. <laughs> but if you have a donut budget, you are more than welcome to come bring us donuts. A lot of people have asked me, is it okay if I come, even if I'm not in the WGA? Yes, please. We just need more people there. It'd be amazing. Nice. Uh, Rob, do you have anything else? I think I'm good. Great. Olga, thank you so much for joining us, sending you and uh, your comrades lots of love and support. Uh, we will link to resources in the show notes. Where can people follow you uh, and find more of your uh, witty banter uh, and jokes and political commentary online? Yeah, come come find me on Twitter. I'm Possum Lives. Uh, you may have followed my old account, which was banned by Elon for various reasons. Um, I'm also on Blue Sky as Run Olga Run because uh, we're all moving over there now, I guess. Uh, so feel free to come say hi. Tell me my signs are funny and uh, don't reply too many times. Thanks, Olga. Thank you so much for joining us. Sweet. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>